First Peter chapter five. <clears throat> we'll read once again the first six verses. First Peter five, commencing verse one. Let's hear God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And God will add his blessing to the reading from his word for his name's sake. Bow with me for a moment, would you please? Let's seek the Lord. Father, in this moment before the word of God is proclaimed, we ask for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, that divine enabling to preach the power of thy gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. May truth trump all error this day in our hearts and minds. Give us, give us, we pray, Spirit of God, that illumination that can only come from thee, something that far exceeds human intellect, a spiritual grasp of the truth, for only that will transform us. Everything else we admit freely as head knowledge. That's not what we want. We want the knowledge that sanctifies, makes us like Jesus Christ. And we pray that thou wilt shut us now in with thyself. In Christ's name, amen and amen. We're coming this morning once again to verses 5 and 6 where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes, Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. From those verses we are considering the subject of humbling ourselves under God's hand. You'll recall that the idea of this whole affair being a battle is suggested by the word resisteth in verse 5. God resisteth the proud. It's a military term that means literally to arrange in battle as a military commander would arrange his troops for battle. The fact that God is at war with our pride tells us quite plainly that we are in a battle with our pride. His enemies are our enemies and vice versa. So pride is an enemy that we have been called to war against and one that we will have to do battle with our entire lives. There's a well-known verse in Proverbs chapter 6 that sheds an interesting light on this subject at hand. Solomon makes a list, you recall, of seven things that God hates that are an abomination to him. Heading that list, number one is a proud look. He hates a proud look. The Hebrew rendering of that word is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. It speaks of someone who looks down on others with, with scorn, with disdain, as if they are beneath them. 
Peter uses a similar thought in this word translated proud in verse 5, that God resisteth the proud. It's a compound word made up of a word that means uh, over or beyond or exceeding. Uh, we get our word uh, hyper from this particular uh, Greek word. And the other part of that compound word is a word that means to appear or to show. You put it all together, you have uh, the proud being described as one who shows himself above or exceeding or better than others, if you will. I, I think our modern day vernacular would be that they are stuck up. Which probably comes from that expression, having your nose stuck up in the air. Because they are proud, they view themselves as superior, above almost everyone else. And so, to use the flip side of that expression, they look down their nose at you as being inferior. You readily see why the Word of God speaks so often and so directly to this particular sin. Not only because it is so prevalent, because it, it's something we have to fight our entire lives, but because the uniqueness of this sin makes it hard to detect. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote that pride is much more difficult to discern than any other corruption. Because... By nature, pride is a person having too high a thought of himself. Is it any surprise then that a person who has too high a thought of himself is unaware of it? He thinks the opinion he has of himself has just grounds and therefore is not too high. As a result, there is no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. The very nature of it is to work self-confidence and drive away any suspicion of evil respecting itself. It is exceedingly deceitful because it convinces you you're beyond reproach. How many forms it actually takes? Uh, Edwards again comments on this. Pride takes many forms and shapes and encompasses the heart like the layers of an onion. When you pull off one layer, there is another underneath. So we can become proud about our achievements in life, proud about our looks, proud about our talents, proud about our intelligence, proud about our possessions, proud about our race, proud about our social status, proud about our Bible knowledge. Even we can become proud about our humility. At the end of the day, pride is simply self-worship. It is idolatry. God alone deserves to be bragged upon, to be boasted in. Amen. But pride does the opposite. It puts self upon the throne. And you can readily see why Peter addresses this need for humility immediately after instructing them to submit to the office bearers in the church and to submit themselves one to another. To do that... To submit, to be subject to, means you have to put down self. Because as long as self is on the throne, then it's impossible. It is impossible to be subject to anyone else. Andrew Murray cast pride in its true light when he wrote that all the sin of heathendom, all the sin of Christendom, is but the outgrowth of the one root, God dethroned and self-enthroned in the heart of man. Pride dethrones God and enthrones self. And so we looked last week at just why this battle with pride 
that we all face is so hard and why we'll have to fight it until we die. We also look at the blessings that come to us when we humble ourselves under God's hand. Peter says God gives grace to the humble. You fight against the pride, fight against resisting. He hates it. But he loves to give grace to the humble. Humility brings with it uh, a deepening experience of God's presence. Uh, He gives grace to the humble. The proud he knows afar off. Which moved, obviously, Thomas Leighton, the Puritan, to write that God's choice acquaintances are humble men. He loves humility. So it brings us to a greater experience of his presence. It, it, it enables us to bear affliction. This is, and we're going to see it toward the end of the message, but this is the greater context of what they were going through, of the afflictions that they were suffering. It strengthens them to endure the affliction. Pride would do just the opposite. Pride makes it hard to bear up under trouble and trial and affliction. It bucks against it. It deepens our love for others. When you are walking humbly with God, you are not viewing yourself as so superior, which is just pouring cold water on any kind of love. And we found out that it safeguards us from this destruction that goes hand in hand with pride and the haughty spirit before a fall. So there is this battle with pride. There are the blessings of humility. And thirdly, look again at this verse and you will see the business of self-humbling. The business of self-humbling. Be clothed with humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's the business we have to deal with. While those two statements have much in common, they are not simply ways of saying the same thing in a different way. One deals with a state, a condition, a mindset, an attitude, while the other deals with an act. One is an attitude, the other is an act. And both are absolutely critical to happy and holy relationships in the church. Let let, let me unpack this and uh, hopefully explain what, what I mean when I say one is an attitude and one is an act and both are needful. Be clothed with humility. Now, literally... The word humility is first in the Greek text. So the literal rendering would be, and with humility, clothe yourselves. He puts the word first. With humility, clothe yourselves. That word humility, again, it's one of those compound words in the Greek. First word meaning low or humble. The second word is the word for mind. Paul, in our translation, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, exact same word, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In his farewell to the Ephesian elders, there on the seashore, he, 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 he told them that while he was among them, while he carried on his ministry in Ephesus, he labored in Ephesus, he served the Lord with all humility of mind. Same word. Humility of mind. So in verse 5, Peter is dealing with humility as a, as a mindset, as a way of thinking. Something that is very much, therefore, uh, internal. It has to do with the state of the heart. You contrast that thought with 
what Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 23, he warns the Colossians against these false teachers who, I quote, have indeed a show of humility. They have an appearance, an outward form of humility in all they're teaching you to do. It looks so full of humility that they're humble men. They gave the appearance that they were humble, but that's what Paul says all that it is. It's a show. It's put on. It's not genuine. It's not in their hearts. They were false teachers. And they were not going to have humility. They weren't going to have that inward heart attitude of humbleness. It's not that when I say that it's internal, that it's a mindset, it's not that genuine humility won't be seen. It will, because Peter is telling them to clothe themselves with humility. And clothing is something you see. And I should say in passing along that line sidebar here, all of our graces need a covering. All of our graces need the covering of humility. Because we can grow proud about the grace of love or the grace of joy or the grace of peace in our lives or of long-suffering or of meekness or of goodness, whatever it might be. We can become proud about those things and every grace in our life, life needs to be covered with the grace, the clothing of humility. So this is, Peter's, this is Peter's point. In their relationships with each other, he wants them to behave as those who are humble-minded and not as those who are proud and look down their nose at everyone else in the church as being superior because Peter knows what that's going to produce. It's going to produce strife, division. You won't have that when Christians are walking with this humble-mindedness. It just won't be there. Real humility is a grace of the heart. If it could, it would hide itself. Humility is never about Appearances. It's never about that which is worn on the outside, but always about that which is within the soul. The kind of humility that only is taken up with appearance and how I look before others, but not with the humility of the heart, it is the most refined and subtle and most dangerous kind of pride you'll ever come up against. It's deceitful. When you look at that word he used for clothe, be clothed with humility, you really get what the apostle, you don't see it in your translation, and you wouldn't, but this, this is where sometimes a little, knowing a little Greek, not the guy around the corner, but knowing a little Greek is helpful. It doesn't mean you have to have Greek to understand the word of God, but it sure does shed some light on passages that you might not see otherwise. Here's a case where this takes place. It's only used here in the New Testament. This, this particular word not used anywhere else. The root word of clothe refers to a kind of apron that the slaves would tie in a knot about their waist when they went about doing their menial tasks. It immediately did two things. It identified them as a slave. Only the slaves would wear these. It identified them as a slave, and it fitted them, it suited them for the work they had to do. So you see what, Paul, what, what Peter is about here when he says, they got the word, they knew what that word was about. Clothe yourselves, he's really telling them to gird yourselves with humility as a slave would gird himself with his apron. Show by your humility and service that you are living in subject one to another, that you are living in subjection to the elders. Mindset of a servant, mindset of a slave. I cannot, and I'll ask him one day, 
I cannot get away from the, the thought that Peter had what we were looking at at the Lord's table in his mind this morning when Jesus Christ girded himself with a towel and went about and washed the disciples' feet. That was the act of a slave. This is the master, the Lord and master now, girding on, tying around his waist this towel to serve his disciples. But that was the mindset of Christ from the word go. He came to serve. I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And he showed that all throughout his life. That was his mindset. Even though he, as he walked the face of the earth, he was sinless. He was the Son of God. If anyone had a right to brag, to boast, to glory, I'm God. Amen. But he did not. He continually acted as a servant. And that's what Peter's about. How much the church needs to remember this fact and its daily battle with pride. We are to wear the garb of a slave. A humble mind is going to think about the service it can render to others. What can I do to help and not be taken up with being served, being waited upon, expecting that to, heck, to take place. Right? We're the servants. We're not the kings, we're not the queens, we're not the lords, we're not the masters, we're the servants. Mindset. When it comes to serving others, the humble mind honestly believes there is no task that's beneath their dignity. Nothing. Nothing they won't do if it's got to be done. It's not beneath me. There's no brother or sister that they wouldn't serve. Being clothed with humility is the very opposite of being high-minded. Because the humble mind lays self aside. You've heard the acronym being used, and it, it doesn't matter how much it's used, how much it's repeated. The problem is it's actually following through with the acronym. What is joy? It's Jesus first, another second, and yourself last. And that really is what joy is all about. We lose that joy when, especially when we're first, and we're waiting for someone to wait on us. And not taking the initiative to wait on others to serve. It's a battle we have to fight all our lives. Amen. It's a lesson we have to learn over and over and over again. I, I tend to think that it's just going to begin to dawn on us something of the significance of this when we're close to the grave and we'll look back and boy do I see it now I was waiting too often for people to wait on me and I didn't have that servant's attitude there's a second aspect in this business of self-humbling as I pointed out humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God this is an action that we take, not a state or an attitude in which we live. 
All graces are in all Christians in some measure. In every Christian there is a germ, at least of every fruit of, of the Spirit, mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. So in every Christian there exists humility, along with all of the other graces, although in some ways it may be hard to detect, but it is there. Because the Holy Ghost dwells within them. And they've got spiritual life, and if they've got spiritual life, they've got spiritual fruit. So, 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 so every Christian has, has some degree of this grace of humility, and like all other graces, it needs to grow. You haven't attained. But what Peter refers to in verse 6 is the act of humbling oneself. Not a state, a mindset of humility. And it will only be because there is this grace of humility, this mindset, that there will ever be any self-humbling act in a child of God. Where you don't have one, you're not going to have the other. When God's people humble themselves, they are seeking to deal with the pride that they know still exists in their heart, in their lives. They're aware of it. Peter is telling them to do something. Yes, be clothed with, have this mindset of a servant, clothed with humility, but also humble yourselves, therefore. Commit that act of getting low before the Lord. It's obvious that Peter knew there was a definite need among these people to do that. Even if he didn't, the Holy Ghost did, the one who gave him the words to write. They needed to abase themselves before God. They needed to get down low. It was a deliberate act on their part that was needed. So I'm not really asking you to think about whether or not you have humility or to what degree that your attitude is that of a servant. If you're a believer, humility is somewhere in your heart. I don't ask whether or not you are in a humble state of mind just now. You may or you may not be. But what I believe that we all need to do is to engage in this act of bowing our souls before God, bowing down lowly, reverently, that we might obtain the mercies from God that we're going to need. He gives grace to the humble. Peter says, therefore, you need that grace. You need that mercy. Humble yourself. Something else about this self-humbling act. Humbling ourselves before God must be voluntary. Humble yourselves. Peter doesn't say that God humbles you. That, that, that is true, but he's saying you humble yourself. You're not to wait there for some moving of the Spirit. Humble yourselves. And I don't mean by that that the grace of God or the Spirit of God isn't the author of any real humbling of the soul. Without the Lord we can do nothing. And that includes humbling ourselves. It'll just be a dead exercise external. But you will read of examples in Scripture where the Lord took action to humble men. That's not what Peter's calling for, but the Lord has taken action to humble men when he says they need to be humbled. I'm going to humble them. There's a big difference between being humble and being humbled 
many persons have been humbled by God, but they're not humble. Pharaoh was humbled. He was humbled when he saw that even the flies and lice could leave him and all of his army powerless. A little bug just laid him low. Proud Pharaoh, the man who cried, Who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice? Was made to cry to Moses, Entreat the Lord that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail. God humbled him. But he wasn't humble. Even so, may God might humble his people at times. He may take away their possessions and leave them humbled in poverty. He may take away that in which they take pride and humble them in the process. But what this passage is asking us to do is that we would humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God moves in providence to humble us. It's a far better place to be in when you humble yourself than to have God humble you. It's this this willing humbling that the Lord delights in. He would far rather see his people humble themselves, abase themselves, get low, and confess they are nothing, they have nothing, that they're powerless, that they're sinners, that they fail, that they're troubled with pride and self-importance. To confess to the Lord, I'm nobody. I have nothing. I am nothing. My fourth and final point is the basis for humbling ourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Again, this is the only occurrence of that phrase in the New Testament. The mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves. The basic idea is that of omnipotence. The mighty. He doesn't just say under the hand of God. He says the mighty hand of God. Omnipotence. It's a familiar idea in the Old Testament. The hand of God being on or upon someone can speak of God uh, exercising his power to bring blessing. For instance, in Ezra chapter 8, verse 31, Ezra says, The hand of our God was upon us. We were under his hand. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy. That was good having the hand of God on you to save you. But this image of God's hand being upon someone is often used to describe the power of God being exercised for punishment or for chastening. Here's what Job said. Job chapter 19, verse 21, Have pity on me, O my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Remember a few Wednesday nights ago, we were looking at Psalm 32, verse 4 in the prayer meeting, David's confession of his sin. He was describing his state before he confessed it, and he said, Day and night thy hand was heavy on me. This is what Peter's referring to when he speaks of them being under the mighty hand of God. They were in a time of great affliction. You know that. We've been in this book for months now. We've had calls to refer to their deep sorrows many times. Fiery trials? 
put to death for their faith, everything taken from them, spouses being separated. And Peter's reminding them that these afflictions are the result of God's exercising His power, His mighty hand. You're under God's mighty hand. This is His doing. His doing. Our afflictions, doesn't matter where they come from, are the work of God. But we easily forget that. We forget that when the Word of God says that God's hand is upon us, and it may be a very heavy hand that's upon us, we forget that it's also saying that God is near us. His hands upon us. All we see is the affliction. But it's looking beyond the affliction and seeing, oh, that's, that's the hand of God. And He's working. He's working in this affliction to let me know He's near me. This comes from Him. His hand is right there. I don't need to be afraid. I'm in that. That hand's on me, but I'm also in that hand. What we must not fail to see, if ever we're going to clothe ourselves with humility and humble ourselves under this mighty hand of God, particularly in our afflictions, and that is the greater context of this statement. It gives us, it gives us all the reason that we would ever need. Here's the basis for all of this clothing ourselves with humility and humbling ourselves. Think about it for a moment. You, if you're one of His, you are under the hand of your Creator. What is the creature but what the Creator has made him? All that you have, you have because the Creator has given it to you. Amen. So, you and all that you have is far more the property of the Creator than it is of you. Since he gave it to you, his hand created you and gave everything that you have. So it's really far more his than it is yours. Therefore, should he not be and must he not be the one upon whom we are entirely dependent and submissive? He's the one that made us. The Creator. Does God not have a right to do what He wants to do with His own? In that the argument that Paul is using in Romans 9, hath not the potter power over the clay? He is the potter. His hand is upon the wheel. Upon that clay doing what he wants to do, which is the wisest and best thing to do. He's the creator. We're the clay. How do you humble yourself? How do you humble yourself if you do not believe with your heart that he is your creator God? That our creator... 
to, to take the words of Isaiah, all nations before him are nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. So that our Creator would take such a, a loving and an unfailing interest in and care for all the argument that I would ever need to humble myself before God is right there. Nothing else. This Creator has put his hand upon me. And he has brought these afflictions. He's brought me into this spot. And he's brought me among these people. And what I, what I need to do is to walk humbly before God and to see myself as I'm a servant to do the Master's will. That's all that matters. It's hard to bow without that mindset. You're also under the hand of your king. The mighty hand of God is a sovereign hand, and that means that we are the subjects of the king. He's the ruler, and we're the ruled. If creatures should be humble before their creator just because they're his creatures then sinful creatures are even under more obligation to humble themselves before God the King. Even after God has saved us from our sins, we transgress His laws. We break the rules. We overstep. We go beyond we miss the mark. We sin deliberately. We reject his counsel. His counsel is his word. And no matter how plain it is, we follow our own counsel. We lean on our own understanding. We excuse even our rebellion. I've always been struck with that expression in Bonner's hymn, No, Not Despairingly. He refers to his sin as infinite sin. God alone is infinite. He never had a beginning and will never know an end. Sin is not infinite. But it was the best that Bonner could do to express how he felt about the multitude of sins in his life. It's like my sin is infinite. As the old preacher said, I read many. I was just struck with the phrase, Oh, my sin, my sin, my sin. That would have been quite fine with Daniel. He, didn't have any, he wouldn't have any problem with hearing God's people pray like that. Daniel chapter 9, verse 5. Listen to him. We have sinned. And have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgment. We have sinned. Daniel said that. And therefore I have every reason to abase myself and to get down as low as the grace of God will take me before my king. I have no ground to be proud about anything. Sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. Why should I ever look down my nose at any other Christian? Why should I want to hone the skill of fault finding 
a very fine edge. The hand and all of my afflictions that are upon me is the hand of the king. I will say with Job, I'll shut my mouth. I've heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. He humbled himself at the end of his season of affliction. And the Lord delights in it. But there's a third and final thing I want you to see about this mighty hand of God being upon them. You're under the hand, the mighty hand of your father. Your creator, yes. Your king, yes. But your father. And as your father, you have experienced continual good from his hand. I know you would say, with me, the only thing I deserve from the hand of God is hell. That's what I have earned. But this, this is the hand of the Father, and he keeps giving and giving and giving and giving. Even when his children dishonor him, disobey. His mighty hand has provided for you. His mighty hand has led you through many a dark day and you didn't know where to go and you didn't know what to do. But the Lord did. I will lead them, I will lead the blind by a way they know not. And that mighty hand has held your hand every day. And he's never let go. Every time we have forgotten that, we get all flustered. The Lord's got my hand. I don't need to be afraid. I'm not going to get through this. I won't find my way out of this maze that I don't understand. That hand... That mighty hand of God has also chastened you. You felt it. And it hurts. But it's always been the chastening of a father in love. Not a despot in anger. His hand has always held you safe and secure. And, and why? And why? Well, because we're his little children. We're, we're, we're all just little children. We don't know how to go out and to come in and we lose our way so easily. We lose our hope, our confidence. We neglect our Father's word. We neglect our Father's throne. We neglect our Father's Son. And yet for all of this, the hand we are under, even when that hand is a heavy hand of affliction, the hand we are under is always the hand of a Father. And therefore I know it will never crush me.
that hand, thank God, will never be one that cast me away. And it will never fail me in my hour of need. Should we not humble ourselves, therefore, under our Father's mighty hand? It's that hand, that same hand, that brings the affliction, Peter says, that one day will lift us up, will exalt us at the right time, at the right time. For now, he says, humble yourselves, humble yourselves. May God write his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's all seek God's face together. Father in heaven, we join our hearts today to thank thee that we are in the hand of our Father. No man no creature can pluck us out of that hand. Amen. We thank Thee, Lord, that it is the hand of our Creator, of our King, our Sovereign. And with it all, it's the loving hand of a Father. We pray Lord, that Thou wilt grow this grace of humility in our lives. We hate self and selfishness and all that it does by harm to our own souls, to the souls of others. We cry to Thee this day for that divine enabling to be clothed with the mindset of humility and to abase ourselves under thy mighty hand that thou wouldst be glorified in how we live in this world and Satan would be put to shame defeated. In Christ's name we ask, amen and amen. Mm -hmm.